Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If that sounds like the sort of treasure you want to seek out, why not don your magic armor and come on a quest to hear from some of the finest product thought leaders and practitioners in the world? Oh, and me. You can go north to onenightinproduct.com where you can sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or follow the podcast on social media and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we take down a classic tome from the product management bookshelf, open it up and see if the treasure map inside is still pointing to product riches. We try to work out what sort of armour you need to defend against rampaging hippos, what mix of attributes you need to roll to have the best chance of success as a product manager, and how to find the right words to solve the riddle of product management. For all this and much more, please enter the magical realm of One Night in Product. So, my guest tonight is Dan Olson. Dan's an accomplished stand-up comedian, product coach and author who once worked designing nuclear submarines before going deep into lean product management principles with 2015's Lean Product Playbook, how to innovate with minimum viable products and rapid customer feedback. But the books Dan's really passionate about are interactive fiction, alongside text adventures, which won't mean anything to anyone these days, but I can assure you we've been bonding over that and of our collection of multi-sided dice and complicated scorecards at the ready. Hi Dan, how are you tonight? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. Actually, I do have to admit that I can't find my multi-sided dice tonight, but uh, I'm sure there are some online generators that we can use if it comes to it. There you go. Well, I took my kids to uh, <laughs> I took my kids to Comic Con here in Silicon Valley, and they were like, "What are those?" So we got them a bag of the, of the <laughs> dice. So they both have a bag of dice. They're ready to go. There you go. As all children should. Yes. So dice aside, first things first. Aside from the book, you're also a coach by day. So what are you up to these days, and what types of companies are you coaching? Yeah, I mean, the main thing I do these days is private training workshops. Uh, luckily, our world of product management has exploded in the last several years, right? Yep. Our heat market reason famously said software is eating the world. It took companies a few years to figure it out, but they realized, hey, if you actually want to build successful software, you can't just have engineers, you need product managers. And so, you know, it's a red hot career and there's not a lot of great places to learn product management. You know, it's kind of like you have to kind of learn by doing. And so hands on workshops like the ones that I offer are, are really, really popular. And so I, I, I basically spend, we were just talking the rest of this month, every week I'm tied up doing private training workshops with product teams, which I really love. You know, sometimes it's just product people, but a lot of times it's PM plus design plus eng plus any other cross-functional groups. And we actually work in the team. So people practice their cross-functional collaboration. So, so it's a lot of fun. So that's what I mainly do with a little advising and consulting here and there. And then also... The Lean Product community that I've built over eight years now is up to over 11,000 people. So each month I host a top speaker wow. and we get together So and, and have fun. I just hosted Marty Kagan last month, ho- hosting Jeffrey Moore on the 15th. Oh, wow. There you so, go. Yeah. Get some marketing going as well. Yeah. Cross-functional. <laughs> but you say software is eating the world and that's obviously true. And I guess you could then argue that also product management is eating the world because it has to to get the right software built. But would you say that based on the feedback or the experiences that you're having doing some of this coaching i mean you must work with quite a bunch of people right yeah is good software eating the world or is there quite a lot of bad software and by extension <laughs> bad product management eating That's the world and question. taking over like let's go to games right like is there like this That's a good question. big pac-man of bad software <laughs> eating the world well the problem is if you think about it right how many different tech companies are there in the world right there's hundreds of thousands at this point maybe millions at this point 
each one has its own code base, right? Each yep. has their, yeah. Now, some of them are using, you know, common libraries like jQuery or, or this or that or Node, but then they build on top of that. So everyone's building their own bespoke code base. So unfortunately, it's not like the arcade world where there's one mega hit or something. I guess you could consider jQuery <laughs> maybe, right? It's kind of you get into which language is a framework. But then that's not really, that's more like a platform because then you build on top of that. So the way I view it is there's like these hundreds of thousands of instances of code. And to your point, it's probably a bell curve distribution of how good it is, <laughs> right? Most things in life are a bell curve. So some people are rocking the, the Three Sigma awesome code and some people are rocking the, the, <laughs> the, the fat part of the bell curve. So that's what you see, basically. That's what, that's what I see here as far as the code and the products. But you must see some things like some quite horrible situations out there where you're working with really demotivated teams working on really poor products that are kind of collapsing under the weight of their own tech debt or their own bad product decisions in the past. Like, do you get to go into some of those companies and turn them around or are you working a lot more with functional organizations or organizations that want to be functional? That's a great question. It's, it's, it's the mix. It's, it's a mix. And basically... Yeah, let's talk about tech debt here. You know, uh, oddly <laughs> enough, none of the people I work with have any tech debt at all. I don't know what you're talking about, Jason. I don't know I what know, you're talking about, right? So everybody had it. It's a, it's a curse. You know, the weird thing is, it's a curse. The longer you're successful, the more tech debt you accrue, right? Yeah. The, you know, I worked on Quicken back in the day. Quicken's still around, right? Microsoft <laughs> Word's still around. Adobe Photoshop. You know, those pro the longer your product's around, like you use whatever frameworks were cool back in the day, like prototype, right? Or something else. And now those are all gone. You got to use, you know, something else. So, <laughs> so it's every once in a while, the longer you're around, it's easy. If you and I were to start and we start by now, we'd be using the freshest code, the most modern <laughs> stuff, but then it just ages over time, right? And, uh, yeah. and eventually you got to pay that tech. So yeah, definitely a lot of my clients, you know, a lot of my clients, the big enterprise company or big companies. And they have, they've been around for a while. And actually, a lot of them, as I like to say, they existed well before the internet, right? Like, yeah. you know, they were around like AT&T, Wells Fargo. These guys were around before the internet. So they were successful companies. And so they have built in patterns and culture and things and processes that serve them well in the pre-digital age. And now they're trying to adapt. So a lot of my clients are like that. I do get us a, a percentage of people that are more like, Oh, they're actually at the two sigma level and they want to take it to three sigma. That's always fun. So, so I meet each team where they're at, you know, and try to get help them get to the next level. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess the question that that begs though, as well, is whether there's any people for whom it's already game over and there's not actually a way for them to, <laughs> to actually make the changes that they need nice. to get there and that they're always going to be kind of stuck in the past. Like, is that, or have you ever been in a situation like that? Nah, well, the problem is those people will probably not come seek me out like this. Right. If it's hopeless, they're probably not going to say, let's spend our training budget on this, right? So <laughs> there's, it's an interesting thing because there has to be enough awareness that there's an issue or an opportunity to improve and a willingness to improve of the people that come and see me. So it's actually a great self-selection thing, you know, but certainly there are some. In fact, all the time, right? I might meet up at my talks. I get questions. We'll talk about how PM needs to be empowered, how product teams need to be empowered. And somebody be like, yeah, but no matter what I do, you know, we're waterfall and it's political and nobody listens. Then I'm like, well, maybe you should go work somewhere else. So, you know, <laughs> at some point, at some point, if you you should fight the good fight, but one sole yeah. PM on a horse against, you know, the whole company culture, at some point, <laughs> you know, you should probably switch, switch teams. Yeah, this is why I always feel conflicted whenever I do my mentoring, because half the time it's always like, yeah, just 
just go and get another job. <laughs> Your yeah. pay sounds awful. And yeah. I guess yeah, you know, yeah. you, you're trying to make people or you're trying to help people get the best out of what they have. But yeah. sometimes it feels like there isn't necessarily a best. And sometimes, like yeah. you say, it's best to just go and find a different mission, right? Yeah. Luckily for me, my workshop class is usually fighting the good fight. They, they see the light <laughs> at the end of the tunnel. They know where they want to go. They need help getting yeah. there, basically, right? But back to your thing is the bell curve. Look, what if you're a brand new PM? Like, you know, we know it's hard to break. It's a catch-22. How do you break into PM if you've never done PM? But imagine you break into PM and you got your first PM job. You're so grateful to have that job. You don't know, yeah. are you in a like average situation? Are you in a dysfunctional situation? Are you in a highly dysfunctional situation? Is it normal not to have a designer? Is it normal for the engineers to tell you to piss off? Like, is that, you know, so you have no idea, right? Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. part of it is you got to like work at a few places to get enough sample size to be like, oh, wow, man, that, that place was messed up. I, this, you know, <laughs> this is how it should be, right? So, so it's tough. And you certainly, you know, there's plenty of writings and people speaking and writing out there about what good teams look like. They are the minority, obviously, but they do exist. And if you can't have a perfect team, at least you can fix some of those aspects or find a team where those aspects are, are good, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So the Lean Product Playbook. Now, I'm sure a lot of my listeners have read that. It's been around a while, but the book's seven years old now. So would you say that it still holds up or do you think there's anything that you'd add to it based on some of the stuff that you know now? No, I think it does. It, it's selling. It just had a record month of sales. And, oh, there you and, go. And it's crazy. I don't know what it is. January, everyone's posting all these books and they're like, hey, Lee, <laughs> like all these posts on LinkedIn and Twitter of the cover and people saying, I just discovered this book. So it's funny. And I think that because there's so many new entrants, so many people are coming into the product world that haven't yeah. read the books that are out there. They don't know the best books. They haven't read them yet. So there's like people discovering this stuff. You know, it's funny. Actually, I'm hosting Jeffrey Moore. Yeah. And he wrote Crossing the Chasm. I'm sure you, you have it there. Good. Yeah. yeah. So, but it's funny because a while ago, I was at some university and we were doing a panel on enterprise product management. And one of the panelists happened to mention Crossing the Chasm. And the whole class's face was blank. And I, I stopped for a second. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. I'm like, raise your hand if you've heard of Crossing the Chasm. No one raised their hand. I'm like, oh my gosh, there are these old classics out there, kind of, if you will. Yeah. So it makes sense. You know, people are coming in. But so, um, yeah, it does hold up. It's kind of an evergreen book on how to build successful products. Yeah. So that, that's basically what it's meant to do. And obviously, some of the tools, you know, like Figma wasn't around then, but the general idea of rapid prototyping tools are in there, right? So, But I guess on the other hand, there could be things in there that you wouldn't recommend anymore based on some of the experiences that you have. Like maybe you don't have to add anything, but there, I remember speaking to Marty Kagan, for example, and he was saying that there was some stuff that he took out of the first version of Inspired when he mm. did the second one because he just didn't recommend that anymore. Yeah. Like, is there any stuff like that that's in Lean Product Playbook? think so. I mean, I, I, I basically, I'm very pragmatic, not dogmatic about stuff, right? You know, yeah. we all know, like, especially like in the agile world, people can be very, some people can be very dogmatic. And I think being too dogmatic does not serve you well because each situation can be different. I actually would add some stuff. There's some stuff. I mean, it's 335 pages. I would add some more case studies on value props. So if you see some of my talks or workshops, I actually have great studies, case studies from Instagram and Uber on value props using their actual material. And then the the big thing is to prioritize customer needs and how underserved the need is. I have the importance versus satisfaction. I always wanted to kind of create a visualization. I just didn't have time before the book was out. So actually, in 2019, I finally cracked the nut with like a heat map visualization that, that I think really solidifies it. So things like that, you know. Version two coming your way yeah, soon, no doubt. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a fan of interactive fiction. And I remember speaking to Christina Woodkey once, who was this. Yeah. Similarly, a fan of such fiction, and we 
floated the idea of a product management game book. Yes. So how come you didn't write the Lean Product Playbook as a choose-your-own-adventure-style product playbook oh, with yeah. dice and character sheets and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah. Like, that seems like that could have been a niche you could have gone after. Yeah. No, I'm glad that Christina is a mutual friend and she realized we both are inter- you know, interested in interactive fiction. I mean, I read those books, Choose Your Own Adventure. They're great when I was a kid. I mean, my book emerged from my PowerPoints, from my talks. It basically, I, I was giving talks and frameworks <laughs> and things like that. And so it emerged from that. You know, it would be, you know, uh, Christina told me every November there's the NaNoWriMo thing, right? So it would be kind of cool yep. and uh, to write something. And, you know, when I read fiction that I get excited about, like Ready Player One or something, it makes me want to explore doing some fiction. And Christina's the master, right? So actually, you know, like I actually got a master's in industrial engineering and we had to read The Goal back in the day. I read The Goal, which is a novel that tries to teach you operations techniques. And um, she's like the queen of writing these yeah. fiction books that teach you business stuff. So I think that would be fun to do. But but it's funny because, yeah, my my background in interaction just as a kid growing up playing the text-based games. And for me, it, you know, they're called interactive fiction now. But for me, it was yeah. the ultimate in problem solving, right? It's like figuring out problems. And and as I like to say, you know, that's the main yep. job of a product manager is to define the problem, right? Developers develop, designers design. So if we had to sum up what we do in one word, I would use the word define, right? And it's about defining the problems and then working with your team to come up with the best solutions. And I think, you know, when you were facing that cursor and just the text and that's all you had is you versus that, you had to really do good problem solving, you know, to figure stuff out <laughs> and move along. Yeah, that's interesting. The idea of, I mean, I think I was framing it as like, what's the verb for yeah. product management? Because, yeah, we we yeah. said before, we chatted before about the designers design, the developers develop and like the product managers managing is just doesn't sound like anything, does it? It's like, I always get back to this whole question that I sometimes ask on the podcast, of like how you describe yeah product management to people that have no idea about it and i think that the yeah trying to define is an interesting one but the point around problem solving and coming up with solutions is an interesting one right because if you look at a lot of the classic literature and a lot of the blog posts and the articles and all the other stuff out there it's all talking about the importance in a cross-functional team of the product people going out there identifying problems i guess you could say that comes from the games but then kind of working more with the designers and developers yeah. to actually define yeah. how to actually solve those problems so kind of problem space versus the solution space and there's a lot about talking how the product managers should stick primarily in the problem space well yeah and leave the solution space primarily to the other side like do you agree with that well it doesn't have to be so black and white divided what i'd like to say is obviously and yeah there's problem space solution space to play here right at the end of the day we're going to ship working software that's in the solution space. That's a develop. <laughs> we hope. That's the developer's domain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, the designer's going to create the mockups and what the experience is going to be with pixels, right? That's a solution space artifact as well. So those solution spaces covered by those teams, right? Those disciplines. The real question is if, to your point, is if the PM is in there going, yeah, let me do wireframes and mockups, and they're, <laughs> it, it, there's no problem with them doing that. As long as they're dotting their I's and crossing the T's on the problem space. But if they neglect the problem, so far too easy. It's, it's too easy to get wrapped up in the mechanics of Agile and things like that. And you're like, well, who's actually talking to customers? Who's figuring out the problems? So the message is not that, oh, PM should not be involved in, in solution design. The message is, well, first and foremost, your job is to define the problem for the team, right? So that's it. And, and that's not as simple. Like we use the word identify. 
It's not that simple. It's not like the problems are just sitting there and you have to go find, oh, I found a problem. It's just <laughs> perfectly articulated. Here we go. So I think I like the word problem articulation, right? Now, the other way I like to think about this is what I call the four Ds. There's discovery, definition, design, develop, right? Those are the verbs, right? Kind of like discover, define, design, develop. And again, designers are going to design, developers are going to develop. So who's really driving the discovery and the definition? And what definition means is the problem or the opportunity, as we were saying. So PMs have to do that. And what I see happen is, is PMs just get... PMs a tough job, right? If it's it's yep. a very broad, broad shoulders job. As I like to say, you know, a good PMs abhor a vacuum. If there's gaps in the team, they're going to fill it, right? Like if there's no designer, who's going to do the wireframes? Probably the PM is going to step up and try to do it. There's no QA, who's going to do UAT? The PM is going to step up and do it, right? So, you know, and all those things on your time and, you know, reporting to execs and all this just can pull away from the core job of just, are you out there talking to customers? Are you trying, are you able to articulate the problems? Because when you talk to customers, it's just like the game, the text adventure game. When you're talking to customers, they don't go, oh, here you go. Here's my perfectly articulated problem. I'm a silver platter. Just go solve this. <laughs> right. In fact, they will lead you astray. They, you know, especially enterprise customers, you're, you're a little startup trying to chase revenue. I call it chasing revenue because you, you know, the clock is ticking on how much cash you have in the bank to you raise your next round or get profitable. Yep. And, you know, IBM goes, well, if you build this for us, we'll buy it. And they give you a spec. Yep. And then you go, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and you go and build it. And then lo and behold, you realize, hey, they didn't even weren't even clear on the problem they were trying to solve. This actually doesn't solve the problem. So, you know, that's that's kind of that whole problem space solution with solution pollution, as I call it. <laughs> so it's really like the PM's job to get out there. And just like just like in the text adventure where you're trying to figure out what the heck do I have to do here? What is the problem? Same thing. Get out there and talk to customers, come up with hypotheses of what the problem could be. It's the same thing as a game. You're like, I think this might this might be the problem, this might be the solution. And you kind of play around with it. You play around with it. Usually in a game, there's not much downside if you do something wrong that'll just say, I don't understand what you're doing or that won't work or you can't use it that way or something like that, right? But I think it's interesting actually extending that analogy even further. If we talk about back doing those text adventure games, sometimes you have to spend quite a lot of time, not just going you know, north, west, south and east and stuff, but you'd also yeah. spend quite a lot of time trying to find the exact words to use exactly to ask a question That's or the exact exactly right. words to use to open the door whatever like in lord of the rings yes <laughs> so that speaks a lot then towards in the real world trying to find that empathy and trying to actually work out a way to empathize with users that maybe you don't have a shared vocabulary of yet totally agree so is that something that you feel is kind of covered by all of these books that we have now and something that product managers can just do or do you think there's still a lot of work to do in that area to get people talking effectively internally and externally I think that's a great point. I mean, I think that's a great point. You're right. So these old these old games would have a parser and you basically would put in a verb and a noun like get lamp, yep. right? Or something like that. And just old, if you want to geek out, there's actually a documentary called Get Lamp because part of these games <laughs> is if you're in the dark, a monster called a Gru would come and kill you. And so you couldn't be in the dark for more than a turn or two. It, it would say, if you were in the dark, you didn't have a match or a torch or something, it would say, you were likely to be eaten by a Gru. <laughs> and actually, one of my favorite nerdcore songs is MC Frontalot has a song called You Are Likely to Be Eaten by a Gru, where it actually, the, the, one of the coders of Zork, Steve Moretzky, is actually in the video. So anyway, go down the rabbit hole there. But yeah, so back to, back to so, but sometimes you're like, what do I call this thing? It's like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what this is. You know, what are words you're going to use? Same thing with the user, right? This happens a lot, where a lot of times the first version of your product that comes out, 
the words don't make sense. The messaging doesn't resonate with customers. And the good news is it's the easiest thing to fix. You don't have to change any code. Just change them to ASCII text and you change it, right? This happens all the time. I saw this with my startup. And so, yeah, getting the vernacular, you know, it really comes down to active listening. And I really love how like user research has become much more popular in the last few years. As people realize, you know, to build successful products, you got to get out there to talk to users. It's, you know, it's not just about showing them mock-ups and getting feedback. So that's the funny thing. Some companies that are still like at the bottom half of the bell curve, they think that's enough. It's like, well, we made the mock-up and we got feedback. Well, it's like, well, how about what did you do before the mock-up even to understand the problems? Like, right. And so it's really like active listening, listening to the terms that they're using and people say it a different way, echoing it back. Well, what I heard you say is this, is that right? You know, kind of getting confirmation like that. And, you know, I think that's a good skill for PMs to have. Obviously, there are user researchers who are very talented in that. If you're fortunate to have a user researcher, great. Yeah. I also, though, don't like PMs just punning and saying, oh, we've got a researcher, so I don't need to talk to customers. <laughs> As I like to say, I- I've been there where I've seen teams send the research team out, interview the users, come back, they send the report. So much gets left on the, the cutting room floor, like all the, you yeah. know, the, all the little juicy nuggets of the first hand. So you want to have first hand customer experience and use active listening for sure. No, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And obviously chimes of a lot of the other stuff that's being put out there at the moment with regards to doing that discovery. Right. I think an interesting thing that I spoke about with uh, someone who was talking a lot about interview techniques was alongside finding their vocabulary and trying to find a way to bond with them is even going as far as to mispronounce or sort of say things the way that they say them, even if you know that they're wrong, to try to make sure that you're not correcting them and that they don't start to close up. So really building totally. that empathy with them. Yeah, I would never correct the user. I would never be like, yeah. oh, yeah, no, it's this. Uh, yeah, exactly. And and the, another thing, a quick hack there too, is show, don't tell. If a user starts telling you, you know, say you're doing some Salesforce research. You know, I hate it when I have to do a report in Salesforce and it has so many clicks and it's so confusing. Level one is you go, okay, great, noted. Level two is, hey, can you actually blog into Salesforce and show me what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Instead of getting a verbal summary, you see the firsthand experience. That's very powerful too. Yeah, I think it's really interesting thinking about the idea that it's the natural or it's the most natural thing in the world for people to get defensive though when someone says something that's basically wrong about a product that they are showing them, for example. So like you're going to go in there, do your discovery or maybe not your discovery, you'll be doing your demo or your prototype reveal to them and they say something that you know is wrong because maybe your product doesn't do that and you know it doesn't do that, but they're, they're absolutely sure that it does that. Yeah. And then you're going to get really defensive and, and basically shut them down. So, yeah, I mean, that's a natural human trait, right? So how do we stop product managers doing that kind of thing and, and shutting people down by mistake? Look, well, what I like to say is feedback is a gift, right? It's like a real gift. Yeah. You can choose to not accept it if you don't want to, but you don't need to reject it in the moment, right? If somebody says, this is horrible, like, what's the point of... Everybody can have their own opinion about things. And it, it, that's their reality. That's their perception. You're not going to change their mind, right? I mean, so, yeah, I just, you got to have, you know, you gotta, obviously it's tough. The closer you're aligned to the product, it's your baby. I understand it's natural human tendency to, as I jokingly say, it's like you're rooting. When we do a usability test, everyone's rooting for the user to get through. And sometimes <laughs> people cross the line and help the user get through. You know, I've seen one yeah. time the, like the person can figure out where to click. And the moderator put their hand on top of the user's hand on the mouse, move the mouse and click the button. Like that doesn't count. It doesn't count. You can't get assisted. <laughs> assisted usability doesn't count, right? So, you know, obviously you want the test to go well, but we should all be seekers of truth. We should be want objective. We should have like a scientist 
kind of mentality, scientific method mentality. It's like, we just want to know the truth. And, you know, and the reality is you may be talking to 10 users. There's thousands, hundreds of thousands out there that you are not going to be able to sit by and hold their hand and help them yeah. use your tool. Your, your product needs to stand on its own. And so you need to know how it behaves standing on its own, not with you giving it a crutch. Yeah, I bet that team that did that assistance, though, still wrote it up as a success, though. So let's hope we don't get to <laughs> yeah. use that product. But in yeah. those game books we talked about, you have to, at the beginning, roll the dice, generate a character with unique attributes, strength, stamina, all that stuff, kind of like Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah. And sometimes you get really good stats and kind of walk through the game, and sometimes you roll terrible stats and you die five pages into the book. So if we were then to reflect that torturous analogy onto product management, what are some of the attributes that a product manager needs to score highly in to have the best chance of succeeding on their quest to develop amazing products? Sounds good. So we can go through them. Strength is, you know, physical strength is not too important. Intelligence <laughs> is important. You're not going to be casting any spells or anything, but intelligence, wisdom is good. I mean, wisdom is really important because, you know, you got to, a lot of times there'll be data. People talk about being data driven, but you always have to interpret the data. So wisdom is, yeah. you're not going to be doing any healing spells, but you need wisdom. <laughs> Dexterity is always handy, no matter what. And the analogy of that in our world is probably being agile, right? Being up, don't get locked in. We like to say like strong opinions held loosely, right? You got to be yeah. respond to new data and things like that. And then charisma, of course, it helps. You know, charisma is always helpful. You don't really need charisma, but because no one reports to us, as I like to say, you know, with great responsibility comes no power, unlike Spider-Man. You got to <laughs> be good at inf influencing without authority, right? So it's less about charisma and more about influence. Like how can I, you know, how can I get these folks aligned and rowing in the same direction by painting a vision, by, by having a compelling why, you know, with data and rationale, right? So that's to go through the typical stats. I mean, basically, you need good communication skills, right? You're sitting between all the different functions. So back to the yeah. speaking the language, not only language of the users, you need to speak the language of the engineers. What's a front-end issue? What's a back-end issue? What's a CSS issue? You know, how big is this thing? You need to speak the language of the designers as far as, you know, layout, pixels, flows, marketing, execs, everybody. So communication is really important. I think one of the top skills that I always, you know, a lot, of a lot of times I'll help my clients interview or select PMs is like prioritization. By definition, there's way more ideas than we could possibly do. You're going to be bottlenecked. You're kind of back to the goal. If you think of a factory line, there's going to be a bottleneck somewhere. You know, we should be bottlenecked hopefully on development, right? And the big yeah. question is, what should we send those folks? Back to the thing. In the early days of describing my job, I would say my product management responsibility is maximizing the ROI on developer resources, right? My job. We can ask them to do these 10 things, these 10 things. There's a million combinations of what we could ask them to do. Our job is what we ask them to do. We have a high degree of confidence. It's actually going to create customer value, right? So prioritization is always important because, you know, and I like to use the word ruthless prioritization. So those are some of the skills. And the last one I'll say is at the end of the day, actually, when, when I was at, like into it, this was the biggest differentiator because all the PMs that would come to interview for us had high stats on all those other things, high intelligence, <laughs> high wisdom, high dexterity. The one thing I, I kind of use the term dynamic range is some people are really good at the, the big picture, 30,000 foot view, right? Strategic, high level, big picture view. Yeah. Some people are really bad at that, but they're really good at the minutiae, the details, right? Oh, this is off by a pixel. Oh, this is misspelled, those kind of things, right? And dynamic range is how, what spread of that range are you comfortable? And can you connect the dots? When the CEO or the GM says, here's our strategic goal for the year, 
and then you turn around to your agile team, can you connect the dots and say, here's why we're working on this feature in this sprint. Here's yeah. how it connects back. Like, that's what I call dynamic range. So that's, that's another one uh, that I value a lot. Yeah, I think having that ability to zoom in and zoom out, but also tie a thread talking about slightly different games now, you know, Theseus and his labyrinth and stuff, but, you know, <laughs> tying a thread from the big picture all the way down to the individual ticket, let's call it. I mean, yeah. I, I think it's really, really essential to make sure that engineers and designers feel completely involved in the process and that they're as strategic partners as possible rather than just people that you're just throwing a bag of manure over the fence every now and then because that never works well. Definitely. But speaking then of more text adventure hilarity, Yes. Let's imagine the big 500-pound ogre walking around the corner, the ogre that is the most senior, highest-paid executive in the company that's (laughs) come there to smash all your plans apart because they believe that you should be doing something different. All of your prioritization that you've just ruthlessly done is going completely out of the window because they're just coming and trampling all over it. How can we defend ourselves against such ogres and what weapons do we need to use against them? That's tough. I mean, you know, you definitely want a Vorpal Blade at your side at all times. <laughs> but let's see. So, you know, that's what I would call, you know, that's one of the top things you see. And usually when I call this out, people realize this is happening. And it, it's not just execs. A lot of people do this. It's like shiny object syndrome. Yep. Something gets our attention, you know, and it's there's plenty of stuff. It's like, you know, what's our blockchain strategy? What's our chatbot strategy? <laughs> What's our ML deep learning strategy, ML strategy, right? Like, it's like they, it, it, it's, it's like, it's like farcical. It's like, yeah, I was in the shower listening to a podcast about blockchain <laughs> and we've got to drop everything and figure out how we're going to do blockchain, right? What's our blockchain play going to be? And, you know, it's, it's like, it's like the Dilbert. It's literally like Dilbert, right? So, <laughs> and it's tough. So the one thing is almost all, every time somebody says we need to do X, it's a solution not a problem. It's technology. It's some new tech, shiny object tech. And look, it may have some applications, but you're not starting with the discover and the define. You're starting with the solution and then saying, okay, where can we do that? I mean, so many examples of this and most all of them fail because they're not grounded in that, right? So, you know, it's tough. So what the one thing, you know, and it's a broader symptom of a lack of prioritization or product planning, right? Because basically what happens is we're already biting too much off, right? If you think about the, a pie, hundred, you know, there's a pie, 100% of the pie, most of the times your average product roadmap that you see for a quarter or a year, let's just do a quarter, it's got like 120% of the pie. It's like you're already <laughs> at the beginning of the quarter, you're already overcommitted. Yeah. And by the way, people haven't gotten sick or left yet, right? The jobs. So you're going to be understaffed. <laughs> It's just like D and D kind of like when you roll the dice. Except most of the times you roll the dice, something negative happens. It's not a. It's not an even distribution, right? It's like it tends to. <laughs> it's like with the agile story. Yeah, could it be eight story points? Sure. Could it be five? Could it be eleven? It's much more likely to be eleven than five. It's a skewed distribution. It's not a symmetric distribution, right? So anyway, you know, basically, and it falls back to nobody ever says no. Yeah. Right. You're sitting around doing your quarterly product planning meeting. And as I like to say, you know, every feature idea, any one feature idea in isolation, it's like a cute little puppy. Oh, look at this feature. Who wouldn't want this feature? It's adorable. Of course, <laughs> of course. And then you put that puppy down, you pick up the next one. Oh, look at this one, right? It's like, I'm sorry, we only have enough food and water for 10 puppies for the quarter. 
So you have to pick which 10 puppies are the most important, right? It's like, it's unfortunate. But nobody does it. It's so funny because it's kind of like the, the equivalent of what you would do in a sprint with your story points. You need to do it at the quarterly level, right? The units are not story points. Yeah. The units are like people weeks or something or people sprints. But that's the, the last, the big thing I see is companies are not, many companies are not good at that. So they end up overcommitting 120% before the quarter starts. Yeah. Or 110, let's just say 110. And then, you know, you roll the dice and you get some negative things happening. <laughs> so it's going to delay and things and people quit. And then that'd be fine. If that was it, you might be okay. But then week two, week three of the quarter, that's when the, the ogre comes in and says, what's our blockchain strategy? Drop everything. And I like to call these um, like meteors, right? Meteors, like because it's like asteroids that just come in and just blow up everything, right? Yep. And they're going to happen. They can kind of happen. You can try to minimize it. But the best defense you have is, okay, here's our roadmap with the, what do you want to displace? We'll, we'll take, well, I guess we're going to take the disruption of this asteroid hitting us, but what are we going to displace? The problem is when people don't displace and they go, what is added in? Yeah. We're going to add that in. We're just going to put that in. And what you've done is, you know, there's like the triangle of like scope, time, quality, you know, and resources. It's like you just, without explicitly cutting something, you just, implicitly cut something. Those yeah. those features at the end of the roadmap, they're just going to silently flip into the next quarter. No one's going to acknowledge it, right? Or you're going to cut a corner on quality. Especially if you're, you know, the other thing I like to say, Jason, is like, it's amazing how much enterprise software ships on certain magical dates of the year. March 31st, <laughs> June 30th, October 31st. There's something magical about these days where all the features <laughs> launch, right? It's like this, you know, because we got to hit the quarter. We got to do the quarter. And so what happens then, you have a bad train wreck happening where you've overcommitted 110%. You've got these asteroids coming in every few weeks. You roll the dice. You got some negative outcomes. And then you got to hit the date though still. You still got to hit the date. There's no relief, right? <laughs> and and that's, that's, how we get, that's, uh, that's how we get train wrecks happening. Yeah, absolutely. And talking about rolling the dice, I was just wondering, since there seems to be a bit of a backlash against story points these days, that maybe we could just roll the dice for the story points and just see what happens. <laughs> There's a backlash against everything, right? So it's, yeah. it's all good. <laughs> always, always a trend going one way or the other. But you have to pick up the right equipment to succeed in any quest, but you can't carry too much in your inventory, right? So part of that is around some of the stuff you've just been talking around, around making sure you don't overload yourself. But part of it could also represent the inventory of the things that a product manager should be doing with their day-to-day -day job. So there's lots of things that we've talked about that they should be doing. What shouldn't they be doing? What should they leave at the side of the road or hmm. discard because it's not really part of their job? Interesting. Yeah. Well, first off, you want to get a bag of holding so you can hold as much stuff as you can. <laughs> and a horn of plenty is good too, so you don't go hungry. But, but wait, this is going against your lean credentials, all these bags of unlean. Hey, if it doesn't take weight, it's all good, man. You know, it's all good. <laughs> Let's see. So basically, you know, it, it kind of goes back to what we were saying is the job can be infinite if you let it, right? There's yeah. never, not like you're ever like, you know, it's funny because I have a friend, you know, they're a doctor. They see patients during the day. They have to follow up on notes, but their work can actually be done for the most part. They can be done. They can be done for the day, close the laptop and be done. And then just next morning, pick it up. Yeah. Our work never ends, right? There's always a customer, a stakeholder, a cross-functional team member that needs something from us, information, a task, something. There's always more research you could do. There's always more analytics you could do, right? There's always more refinement you could do. There's always, 
There's always, right? So, yep. so it's tough. So what I would say is, and you know, I, I mean, productivity stuff is cool. I don't necessarily go way deep into it. It's just do an audit of, do a quick audit of your time. I mean, you can scan your, your calendar, right? I mean, it probably looks like Tetris where you're, you know, I've seen PMs <laughs> double and triple booked and they've yeah. got to apply their prioritization skills to be like, hmm, which meaning of these three should I go to? Should I go listen to the VP? Should I go? Just, you know, they've got to decide <laughs> on the fly, you know, so just do that. And then, you know, it's tough because if you're overbooked, if you're feeling very, very stretched, you know, a lot of places have trouble with ratios you know, and, you know, and it sounds very simplistic, but it is a good high level macro metric of what's the ratio of PMs to engineers, right? And if you've got yeah. kind of 20 engineers for every PM, well, no wonder they're going to be frazzled and feel like they can't do their job effectively. There's no way. There's just no way, right? And uh, so, you, you know, that's one thing is try to advocate for good ratios. There's plenty of advice from me and other people on healthy ratio ranges, you know. And then the other thing is if you're doing more work because there's a function missing like QA or UX or research, then you've got to advocate for that. And, just, and back to this thing of best practices, the reason your company doesn't have a UX researcher is because the management team doesn't, isn't aware of the importance of it. And so you've got to educate them and show. You can show that, that right? So the more things you can offload, like, you know, QA and UX design and UX research, then the more you'll be able to focus on the core things that you need to do, right? And, um, and you got a balancing act between outward facing to customers, right? And doing research and discovery and talking to customers and inward facing with your dev team, right? And so you've got to strike the right balance. So that can be tough. I've seen some people, they think the only part of their job is just the scrum stuff and the ceremonies. And yeah. they live in Jira all the time and it's, they never talk to a customer. And so that's, you know, uh, moderation is, is better than extremes of like, okay, I'm going to spend all my time doing that and not talk to any customers. You rarely see the opposite. It's theoretically possible. I guess you could be out there talking to customers all the time and never, never doing scrum. But the scrum, because it's every two weeks, it tends to take care of itself. It, it's like the beast that must be fed every two weeks. So it's going to be okay. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's really interesting, this whole idea that there's always something more. I mean, I've been there in the past working late, always one yeah. more task to do. And actually, yeah. probably at the end of the day, if you didn't do it, I mean, there's this whole 80-20 rule, like, you know, the, amount, the yeah. amount of effort that you expend and the amount of actual value you get out of it. And yeah, I completely agree that we're always talking about how we should be able to prioritize customer needs, but we very we seem to be very bad at prioritizing for ourselves as well. So Absolutely agree. We should be doing that. Yeah, it's tough. And then one one book I recommend there is actually Make Time is by Jake Knapp. Is it a choose your own adventure book? Not, no, it's not a choose your own Sadly, <laughs> it's not. It's not. But it is a very practical book. It, you know, there's all these different productivity schemes like GTD and all this jazz. It's just, I found it very helpful. So he, he's the co-authors, they wrote the book Sprint. So they came from Google and did the design sprint stuff. But anyway, this yes. is focused on productivity. And I, you know, I, I found it very helpful. I, I consider myself pretty productive, but I found some good tips to go even more, be more productive in that book. So anyway. Sounds good. I'll make sure to dig that out. And where can people find you and seek you out after this if they want to go on a quest to find out more <laughs> about you or some of the stuff that you're getting involved in or maybe yeah. try and persuade you to do version two of the book? Yeah. Well, I, speaking of quests, I got to give a shout out. You turned me on to the Adventure Call, the hilarious spoof of these <laughs> of these text games. It is brilliant. So if you are into interactive fiction, you got to check out Lenny's Adventure Call. You can find me at my website, dan-olson.com. It's dan-olsen.com. That has links to like my talks on YouTube, my YouTube channel, to the Lean Product Meetup that we host every month. 
Lean Product Playbooks on Amazon. It's available also in Chinese, Turkish, Polish, and Thai. So oh, there you go. I assume you translated those all yourself with Not some kind all. of eye of all seeing power or something like that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. Well, I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes anyway, and hopefully you okay, get a few cool. people pop across, or maybe you can even have another second record month of book. Yeah. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really glad that you took some time to share some fantasy-themed product management tips <laughs> with me. Um, obviously, we'll stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, Jason, thanks a lot. It was fun. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app, and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>